0: Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Monday, August 30th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Afghanistan's economy is crumbling as the Taliban take over, and the IMF warns that emerging markets can't afford another taper tantrum. Plus, small community banks in the U.S. played a critical role during the pandemic, and it's because they have something that big banks often don't.
1: We're more likely to have direct personal human relationships with the people who are our customers. We're in smaller communities. We tend to know them. We sit next to them at basketball games.
0: I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Tomorrow is the deadline for U.S. troops to withdraw from Afghanistan. The Taliban has yet to form a government, and Afghans are facing an economic catastrophe of rising prices, banks without cash, a falling currency, and critical aid flows.
2: Well, the country's
1: been in a sort of suspended animation economically.
0: That's the FT's
1: Ben Parkin. You know, the future of Afghanistan's economy will depend on what kind of relationship the Taliban forges with the wider world. So with neighbors like Pakistan and Iran, but also with the US and Europe, which could see a resumption of international aid if there is some level of constructive engagement. But if there isn't, it could mean sanctions and more pain. One of the big threats is food supply. The country has been going through a severe drought, and the UN, the UN World Food Program has warned that as much as a third of the population, 14 million Afghans, are going hungry. And there are fears that the country could literally start running out of food. That's
0: the FT's Ben Parkin. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell has talked about scaling back asset purchases without rattling the markets too much. Officials are being careful to avoid another taper tantrum like the one we saw in 2013. That's when the Fed pulled back on its monetary stimulus following the global financial crisis, and there was a big global bond sell-off in response. The prospect of another jolt and its impact on emerging markets worries Gita Gopinov. She's the International Monetary Fund's chief economist, and she recently spoke to the FT's Colby Smith.
2: Her biggest concern here was that at a time when uh, the pandemic is raging in a lot of these countries and vaccine access has been quite difficult. And on top of that, the economic recovery um, for these countries has also been a lot more uneven and and partial. So layering on top of that any kind of shock uh, to the financial system by a uh, sharp tightening of monetary policy from the Federal Reserve, let's say, that would just add on another a major headwind for emerging markets.
0: Colby, how worried is Gita Kopinov about this?
2: she made it quite clear in our conversation that this was just a risk that she was paying attention to. And ultimately, what she'll be looking to see is what's going on with inflation in the US. So if inflation persists for longer than I think a lot of people now anticipate or inflationary pressures build up much more quickly than people anticipate. The big risk there is that the Federal Reserve might have to throw out its more gradual approach to normalizing monetary policy and instead replace it with, you know, a swifter pace of interest rate increases, let's say. And that kind of adjustment and that faster pace, that might be the thing that sparks um, a redux of, of the 2013 taper tantrum.
0: Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Here at the FT, we do a lot of reporting on banks, mostly big banks. But during the pandemic, small banks in the U.S. played an outsized role. These community banks only hold about 15% of all loans. But when U.S. Congress authorized the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP loans, to support businesses during the shutdown, community banks processed more than half of those funds in the first round. To find out more, the FT's contributing editor, Brendan Greeley, traveled to North Dakota a state with some of the strongest community banks in the U.S.
1: I ended up uh, sort of spending some time with a man named Daryl Jorgensen, who was the business banker for Gate City's branch in Grand Forks. Um, You know, he was moving heaven and earth to get these things underwritten. You know, a lot of his customers actually didn't have email addresses. So he was driving in his truck out to hairdressers and repair shops that, you know, actually didn't have any kind of online presence but needed these loans. Brendan, what were the bigger banks doing at that point? Were they also trying to get those paycheck protection loans out to businesses? So you had banks that said, look, we just don't understand how this is going to work. We're not going to get involved. But then you had community banks that jumped in and said, all right, we are going to figure this out. And at every step of the process last year, both in the first round and in the second round, you had community banks disproportionately represented in sort of the number of paycheck protection loans uh, that, got, uh, that got written. So when I talked to bankers about this, the answer was we're more likely to have direct personal human relationships with the people who are our customers. We're in smaller communities. We tend to know them. We sit next to them at basketball games. And we just decided we were going to stay up all night and figure out how to make this happen.
0: So as you were reporting,
1: uh, what struck you about the way community banks
0: performed during the pandemic?
1: Well, we don't tend to think about transmission of policy, particularly in monetary policy. The way macroeconomists think and the way to some extent the Fed thinks is if you make it cheaper for people to take out loans, they will do it. And when we had an emergency and we did a rush of loans through banks, it turns out that some banks were better at getting new credit, at getting new dollars out into the actual economy. That's really interesting. That means you can't just sort of, you know, n- nudge some dials in the macroeconomy and have things happen. It means you need physical distribution of credit.
0: Okay, so that, that is a valuable lesson. Is there something that other banks or policymakers can learn from what you found in North Dakota?
1: I think the tough part about this is, um, you know, I went and I did a ton of reporting in North Dakota. North Dakota is the only state in America that has a state bank. And the Bank of North Dakota does a bunch of things. It buys student loans. It makes them cheaper for North Dakota residents. It also participates in big commercial loans with community banks. So community banks in that state punch above their weight. What that unfortunately means for policy is it's really hard to create a state bank. No other state has done it. It's literally the one state in the union that has this institution. So, you know, unfortunately, when we look at the success of this one bank and we look at the success of this one state, it's hard to nationalize it other than say we should be aware going forward that the distribution Uh, the actual physical human relationships between branches and people and other people who are bankers really matters when you're thinking about policy. Um, And I I think that's a weakness we all have where we tend to think about, you know, if, if you change the price of credit, you know, people will figure out how to make loans. That's not necessarily true. Like for me, the biggest detail that came out of this is that we had thought the drive through tellers in banks were antiquated and no longer necessary. Um, it turns out community banks have a ton of these, and they were really important during the pandemic. So you just never know what kind of physical infrastructure is going to be necessary to help get credit out to the real economy.
0: Brendan Greeley is a contributing editor for the FT. Thanks, Brendan.
1: Thank you. Before we go, a word about
0: a company that, let's face it, has a name that's just really fun to say. Meet Whoop. A 24-7 fitness strap designed to help you optimize your sleep, recovery, and training. The company, called Whoop, just optimized its prospects thanks to an investment from Japan's SoftBank that tripled the company's valuation to more than $3.5 billion. Whoop is now the most valuable standalone fitness monitoring startup, as opposed to other fitness trackers, which are owned by tech giants like Google and Apple. You can read more about all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
2: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys.
1: Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move.